You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. And welcome to another episode. Is it an episode? It's an episode of the Domecast, our weekly political podcast looking at all things in government and politics in North Carolina. I am Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We've got a really good show for you today. I'm here with Ben Brown of The Insider and with Colin Campbell of The News and Observer. We'll hear later from Craig Jarvis of The News and Observer. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, social issues which have returned to the stage in the legislature. We'll Talk a little bit about uh, Governor Pat McCrory, and of course, we'll get to our headliners of the week. Let's get started. So, uh, Colin Campbell and Ben Brown, we had uh, a lot of attention this week on social issues, in particular, uh, a bill dealing with abortions and some other issues tucked in there, and also uh, magistrates. Uh, let's talk about the magistrates' bill which would exempt magistrates from performing uh, marriages. It ties in with the whole issue of same-sex marriage in North Carolina, and it generated a lot of debate. Let's listen to a flavor of that uh, on the House floor in Raleigh this past week. Yet here we are engaging in what can only be described as a legislative rearguard action, desperately seeking to fend off history, intensifying resistance to the law, and encouraging a continuing conflict on the issue of same-sex marriage. How sad for all of us, because the result here will be nothing less than greater balkanization of our nation, another round of suit filing and injunctions, a continuing hit to the reputation and potential economy of the state, and most profoundly, an inevitable diminution of the respect of the law. I will vote for this bill because it at least provides protection for certain officials against government coercion to uh, participate in the celebration of something that they consider perverted and morally unconscionable. Uh, it will allow such, uh, excuse me, if we allow such coercion to prevail against public officials, how long will it be before the same coercion is applied to pastors or other clergy? This bill attempts to pull us back from that slippery slope. And that was Representative Rick Glazier speaking against the bill. Rick Glazier of Fayetteville, a Democrat. And then you heard Larry Pittman, Representative Larry Pittman, a Republican from Concord. Colin Campbell, bring us up to speed on what that was like and, of course, what happened uh, in, the, in the moments, really, that followed. Yeah, so it was uh, essentially two days' worth of debate on the House floor. Uh, they had to do two different votes, and the debate got brought up twice over the course of the, the time they were talking about it. And um, sort of the, the main arguments, the, the Democrats, of course, concerned that uh, this is something that will open the door for discrimination. They 
uh, posit a particular scenario wherein a same-sex couple walks into a courthouse, they want to get married, and the magistrate on duty has not yet taken the exemption but uh, from performing marriages, but realizes that faced with the prospect of having to uh, perform a gay wedding, he opts for the uh, exemption right then, and so the couple is turned away uh, and has to come back on a different day to get married. They see that as discrimination. On the other side, it's a big relig religious freedom issue. Uh, there's this feeling that magistrates shouldn't have to quit their job just because they have a religious objection to performing uh, gay wedding ceremonies and the feeling that uh, it combats the discriminatory uh, angle on it because you would be exempting yourself from all marriages for at least six months so you wouldn't be able to marry a straight couple uh, just as well as a, a gay couple during that time and, and there's a provision that would require 10 hours um, of uh, marriage availability in every county per week uh, so that was for the, the big fault lines, and it really brought back a lot of the uh, debate that we saw several years ago, back when Amendment 1 was uh, under discussion to be put on the ballot, the big constitutional amendment that would ban gay marriage. Of course, that's been pretty much trashed at this point by a, a federal court judge ruling last year, and, and now same-sex marriage is legal in the state. And this is effectively the uh, reaction that uh, the right has had to uh, try to, I guess, mitigate the effects of having legal gay marriage and so and so a lot of passion and we heard some of that uh and of course then uh this heads to governor uh, mccrory who issued his first veto of the session um was there any surprise about that and what what was it that the governor said was his reasoning for that well, the governor basically said, you know, if you take an oath to uh, uphold the law as part of your job, then that's the job you do, and you uphold the law no matter what it is, and, and that this is not, you know, an appropriate uh, way to handle people who uh, object to aspects of the law. Uh, so his veto came within hours of the final House vote. Um, surprised some that were concerned uh, that he was either going to let this become bill with uh, bill become law without his signature or uh, go ahead and sign it, although he had indicated several months earlier that he uh, opposed the bill. He didn't think it was necessary, um, but at that point he never said whether he'd veto it or not, so this was a, a big announcement for him, and like you say, it is his first veto, uh, his only his fourth veto as governor of North Carolina. And Ben Brown, uh, he was threading a needle. He did uh, speak in a statement of language that, that said he sh shared the concern of, of people who believe that there's a religious... Uh, conscience at play here, but but he didn't ultimately say that that was what should happen in the public sphere. Is that right? Fair? Yeah, and he, he's sort of pulling from both concepts, and he's getting praise for it uh, from people who didn't want this thing to go through. Um, of course, you know Tim Moore may try to go for a veto override. Seems like the numbers are there in the Senate. Uh, the House is definitely what we're going to keep an eye on, uh, needing that three fifths majority of present members. If I got that right. Yeah, and, and that's where it's unclear. Is that right, Colin and Ben Brown? It's unclear as as we sit here how exactly this is going to play out in the House where an override is the question. Yeah, the, the, as I calculated, it was about 61% of the House members present yesterday on uh, Thursday that had voted for it, um, the threshold, of course, being 60%, and there were 10 members, uh, five Republicans, four Democrats, and the one unaffiliated member who did not vote uh, were absent or, or excused from the vote. Uh, so it, it could go either way. And so the question is when the override vote might happen and uh, whether uh, the Speaker Tim Moore may opt to do it at a time when he knows that the votes are in the room, which was a tactic that Tom Tillis had used as Speaker in the past. 
Now, uh, Ben Brown of The Insider, uh, that wasn't the only social issue uh, generating headlines in the past week. Correct. Uh, tell us about the other one that consumed a lot of attention, that would, uh, particularly yeah. in the Senate. Yeah, that, that would be the uh, abortion waiting period extension bill. Uh, and the resistance to that was almost like a companion to the magistrate's bill in a way because, you know, in, in both debates we heard this theme of second-class citizens you know, in the magistrate's bill, we heard opponents say that this is rendering gay people as second-class citizens. And then in the Senate chambers on Thursday, we heard uh, Senator Erica Smith-Ingram say that the abortion focus bill renders women second-class citizens because it kind of assumes that they can't make decisions responsibly on their own. Um, and it sort of stirred this criticism, or whatever you want to call it, uh, about there being too many old, out-of-touch men in the legislature and that the bills like these are, are products of that. Um, but it, it got really political, too. You know, uh, Senator Jeff Jackson a uh, Democrat from Mecklenburg County, he was enraged by the fact that some of his criminal justice bills that he sponsored were rolled into this uh, abortion waiting period bill without his knowledge. Uh, and he flat out opposes the abortion waiting period concept. So he vented at a press conference on Wednesday and again on the Senate floor Thursday that this is just low blow politics. They're forcing him to vote against common sense. These are his words, common sense measures that deal with the safety of women and children. Um, and that Republicans knew he'd be voting against the uh, abortion measures, so they're forcing him to vote against good policy so they can attack him for it in campaign season. He was very upset. So they, they meaning the Republicans, tucked some other measures that Democrats support into a bill that included things they don't support, really politically boxing them in. That's correct. And yeah, that, that's that's what he contends. Let's um, let's hear from Senator. Jeff Jackson about that uh, earlier this week in Raleigh as we head out into a break. So I said, okay, I'm a former criminal prosecutor. I know some fixes we need to make to our criminal code. Here are some bills. When they didn't pass, I thought that was simply the price I paid for being a young Democrat. Then they pop up in the abortion bill. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they know we're all going to vote against it which means we're going to end up voting against this common-sense criminal justice legislation, and they want to be able to use that against us in campaign season. So what we're seeing in this bill isn't just disrespecting women, it's also disrespecting the voters of this state. In the small town of Elmira, New York, a boy was born into an all-American family. The odds of him achieving his dream in the fashion industry? One in 23 million. The odds of having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 68. I am Tommy Hilfiger, and my family is affected by autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. And we're back. Thank you for listening to the Domecast, our weekly look back and ahead in North Carolina government and politics. I'm Andy Curlis. Uh, we're going to have a segment here on Governor McCrory, Ben Brown of The Insider, and Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer, both following the governor this past week. And, of course, the bills we just talked about, uh, abortion waiting period, uh, magistrates the governor vetoed, abortion waiting period likely headed to the governor next week. And, uh, of course, that wasn't the only thing the governor was doing this past week. Ben Brown, tell us about that. Yeah, we got word that uh, McCrory was at the legislative building. Uh, I believe this was Wednesday at the legislative building, which is not really all that common lately uh, for him to be there. 
We heard he was addressing Republican lawmakers on his bond agenda and his wish to borrow um, about $3 billion for highway projects and other public interests. And we heard that he was accompanied by Art Pope. So um, Craig Jarvis and I wait outside the caucus meeting. And Art Pope being the former budget director correct. and influential figure in Republican uh, politics here in North Carolina. That's yeah. correct. We hear he's there at uh, McCrory's side. So we uh, wait outside the caucus meeting and legislators start trickling out. Uh, Senator Tom Apodaca walks past us and he just says flat out, you know, can't talk about it, can't talk about it, which is not uncommon. I mean, you know, th these are closed door meetings on purpose. It's a caucus meeting. But afterward, we end up uh, rendezvousing with Governor McCrory at the old state Capitol building. And he gives us and the Associated Press uh, several minutes to talk about why he met with lawmakers and what our Pope was doing there uh, with him. And so, Craig Jarvis, uh, what was it that the that the governor said uh, happened behind closed doors with Republican lawmakers? Well, what he said, the purpose of the visit was was to uh, keep his bond measures alive, his his uh, agenda to get the uh, uh, three billion dollar bond uh, referendum on the ballot uh, as soon as possible. He as far as I know, is still thinking about this November, although there's been talk that it might be next year before it happens, if it happens at all. So he and his staff have been kind of crisscrossing the state recently to try to drum up grassroots support at the local level uh, for so people will contact their legislator, legislators who really haven't done anything at all on, uh, on this, uh, this idea of putting a... They, they'd have to decide to put the bond issues on the ballot for a vote. And... Uh, that hasn't really happened, so I think he's trying to light a fire under the legislature, say, okay, you've got, you know, the budget's been, is halfway there, now it's time to focus on other issues, and uh, and uh, he brought Art Pope along to share some polling numbers that the governor's foundation, Re uh, Renew North Carolina, which was formed to kind of promote the uh, governor's agenda, they've apparently done some polling recently, which presumably shows that a lot of people want improvements in their roads, their parks, their ports, that kind of thing. So uh, Art Pope shared uh, some numbers uh, uh, some numbers with them. And have those numbers been shared publicly? No, the governor said that they would be, was his understanding, in the near future. Later in the day, Art, Art Pope told me that uh, it would be early next week. So uh, like I said, we don't know what they'll show, uh, but presumably they you know, make the case for the governor. Ben Brown, is this a sign that the, the bonds are, are in trouble, that the governor's plan on bonds is in some serious doubt? I think he really wants to impress <clears throat> upon lawmakers and try to spread word to the people that he's impressing upon lawmakers the importance of doing this sooner rather than later. Of course, you know, like, like Craig said, the question is, you know, when to hold the referendum if they're going to do it at all. And, you know, this November would be the soonest opportunity, but it's also, I'm sorry to put it this way, but it's, it's, it's a, just a municipal election year, you know, essentially, which means a, a low turnout year, usually between, you know, 10 and 15 percent. And so voters are, are, are it's, well, people are saying, you know, wouldn't it be a little bit better to do it during the presidential primary where you'd have a big turnout by comparison? Um, McCrory does insist, though, that the people of North Carolina, and that's why he's citing these polling numbers, are ready to vote on it because they want to see better infrastructure soon. And his other big selling point on this is that the interest rates are low now. Apparently, they right. think they're going to go up at the end of the year. They need to, they're making the case that you know the best use of the people's money uh, is to spend this as soon as possible. But I read somewhere that uh, you know there's a, it's been a lukewarm response. I read somewhere that uh, Jeff Tart said told somebody that he doesn't think they need bonds at all. They've got a surplus. What's the problem? We don't need to borrow money to get these things done. Mm -hmm. But it's a big it's a 
big uh, goal of the governor's. He wants to leave, leave a legacy of, of improvements, I think, in the state. Well, that'll be interesting to watch. It has a little echo there of the budget uh, debate that we just saw in the House where you know some fees went up and others were saying there was uh, surplus money. And so it's that same flavor that we've been hearing. T uh, do you guys know, um, we, I guess we're coming into the Senate budget period uh, here next. That's the next big thing on the agenda for the coming weeks. Is that uh, right, Ben Brown? Yeah, that's right. There was sort of this uh, fantasy calendar that was going around at uh, the Senate um, uh, Appropriations Subcommittee meetings at the uh, start of this week, I believe. And it had, I think, the third reading passage uh, in the Senate on June 11th, which would leave a couple weeks for uh, conference committee uh, and have an adopted budget by the end of uh, June. Uh, of course, that's you know, that supposes a lot. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, it, it's just kind of like a it's a schedule that definitely depends on them moving uh, in the right way. It was some wishful thinking. It was uh, this is how we can do this by the end of the fiscal year. Mm -hmm. That isn't necessarily a hypothetical scenario for yeah. sure yeah <laughs> uh generating i'm sure a lot of laughter in uh offices and and lobbying shops <laughs> across raleigh exactly. to see a june 11th uh, adoption in the senate and i did hear a, some laughter yes in a, in a full uh conference uh yeah. finishing it up by june 30th i'm hoping for august we might be here at uh halloween I think, <laughs> uh, but we'll have to see so let's take a break and we'll come back with our Headliners of the week. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council. And welcome back to the Domecast, our weekly look back and ahead on all things in politics and government in North Carolina. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We are now at our favorite part of the podcast, our segment called Headliners of the Week. We give 45 seconds to each of our panelists Ben Brown of The Insider, Craig Jarvis of The News and Observer, and this week also Colin Campbell of The News and Observer. 45 seconds, headliner of the week. I'll cut you off. I don't have a bell yet. I need to find a bell, <laughs> but um, I will uh, cut you off. And so let's start this week with Ben Brown. Who is your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with Art Pope. Uh, maybe no surprise, but we did hear this week that he's still a voice in the executive branch as a sort of unpaid advisor to Governor Pat McCrory. Uh, McCrory did emphasize that Pope is aboard on a volunteer sort of phone call basis. He's not collecting money. Again, not a surprise to all, but he was there in the flesh in this caucus meeting this week at the legislative building, and that stood out to me as noteworthy. So Art Pope, former budget director, back on the scene, helping the governor in a volunteer role, Art Pope, a headliner of the week. Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer, who is your headliner of the week? Well, certainly Senator Jeff Jackson of Charlotte was the target of the week. His, uh, his, uh, they took two bills that he put some thought into as a, as a fairly young new legislator and put it in uh, the abortion bill, which 
Republicans insisted they do this all the time, and to an extent that's true, but I can't help but thinking that they did it with a little bit of glee because Jackson has, uh, in very public and skillful ways, sort of uh, criticized the Republican majority. Uh, he, he's really quite the orator, and sometimes that works against him, perhaps, because they don't like to be lectured. It kind of reminded me of the role uh, Martin Nesbitt played uh, before before he passed away, in which he would, uh, in which the Democrat or Republicans would say, "Ding, we don't want to be lectured." <laughs> <laughs> and time's up on that one. So, Senator Jeff Jackson, headliner of the week, target of the week. That's a good one, um, and a very interesting political story. I have to say, Colin Campbell of the News and Observer, tell us who is your headliner of the week. Well, I'm picking uh, Representative Dean Arp, a Republican from Monroe. He's kind of a, a lower-profile member of the House. Um, you know, his biggest moment in the news uh, this session so far was the time he got uh, briefly hit by a medical marijuana advocate um, at a committee hearing. Uh, but this week, he was in the spotlight because he was uh, carrying water for uh, Senator Berger, who ran the uh, magistrate's bill. Senator Berger was not there to present it. Dean Arp was uh, the guy who uh, lobbied for it in both the committee sessions and in the uh, full House session. And he got some praise from Democrats, too, that uh, said that he had done a really good job with presenting it in a way that wasn't polarizing, that uh, sort of kept all the passion about gay marriage out of the reasons for and against this particular bill. So for that reason, I think he's my choice this week. Ding! Right on the number. Awesome. Okay, and so Representative Dean Arp, your headliner of the week. Well, okay, so let's see. Uh, I'm going to sift through that, and I am going to go with uh, Dean Arp. I think that's a good argument that Colin makes. And so let's uh, grab some audio and listen to Representative Dean Arp handling the bill on magistrates in Raleigh this past week. As we head out, we thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. There have been a lot of talk on the floor about this bill about it being discriminatory and, and how somehow marriages are not going to be performed. Uh, marriage licenses will be withheld. That's a straw man's argument that sets up a false premise that's found nowhere in this bill. And in fact, it does the exact opposite. In fact, some would have us put in here a religious test of our magistrates and say, you can have religious beliefs, but certain religious beliefs if you disagree with homosexual marriages, you can't be a magistrate. I think it's a dangerous and chilling path that we walk when we put a religious test into holding office. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.